As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I love the Raiders. Most of all, I love to win. You are now listening to State of the Nation with Jimmy Durkin, Vic Tafer, Ted Nguyen, and Deshaun Reed on the Athletic Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to State of the Nation here on the Athletic Podcast Network. Jimmy Durkin, Vic Tafer, Ted Nguyen, Deshaun Reed, ready to get you set for next week's NFL Draft. But of course, that's not the major topic right now uh, in the Raiders universe. On Tuesday, the Raiders' uh, Mark Davis got himself in some hot water, really, with a tweet I can breathe in response to the uh, the verdict out of Minneapolis. Uh, and as Deshaun, you wrote, there wasn't necessarily any ill intent from Mark in this message, but there was a lack of understanding of what those specific words meant. There was a lack of context in terms of how those words had previously been used back in 2014. And you had the chance to talk to Mark and kind of explain that to him, give him a little bit of that realization it did not lead to the tweet being deleted. It did not lead necessarily to an apology. He has acknowledged that he learned something new, but it was a misstep. And I still don't think that Mark has necessarily reacted in quite the, the way that you would expect. Right. And I think when I saw the tweet, you know, as a black man, it, get, it makes you react initially. Just having the context of, you know, I'm somebody that's followed this Black Lives Matter movement closely since it really took off in 2014 with the killings of Eric Garner and Michael Brown. And so I was very familiar with the I Can Breathe t-shirts that were worn by some officers and protesters after the Eric Garner killing. And so I immediately thought to that. But then, you know, as it kind of came together that, you know, the tweet came from Mark Davis, you know, it was seven years ago. I, like it didn't wow me that like a white billionaire NFL owner wasn't aware of this, you know, as intimately. But I think you have to like be aware of your ignorance in that case, you know, that you don't know everything about you know, this subject. And so before you make a statement, a public statement at that, you have to research it and be thorough and and make sure you cover all your bases and and make sure, you know, you're not saying something that's offensive to anybody, you know, especially, you know, if you're you're speaking in support of George Floyd and and the verdict, which I, from the jump, I thought he was. That's why it was so weird to me because, you know, we've seen some of the, the statements they've made in the past supporting Black Lives Matter and Mark Davis, you know, whether it be, you know, the diversity, initiative he's trying to start from a coaching aspect and an organizational aspect with the Raiders. 
I didn't think that he meant it that way, but I knew that nationally, not everybody has the context of the Raiders and Mark Davis specifically backing this movement. They might have thought that they took it that way, like, you know, with the NYPD protests. And so that's what I was trying to get across to Mark is like, you know, there was no context to that statement. You know, just said I can breathe. There was no like, like wasn't like a video statement where he explained it and then led up to that point, so people know that it was supportive and not meant to take the wrong way. And I think he understood that once I explained to him. But at that point, while we were talking, I, th- I think the tweet had been up for like an hour, and his point was, you know, it's out there now. Like even if I deleted it, like it's you know, people aren't going to forget that it was tweeted out or not have the screenshots anymore, which is valid. But it's more so of a, a symbolic thing at that point of like, you know, admitting that this was not the correct statement to make, you know, apologizing, which he didn't do. You know, he said he didn't regret what he said. And I'm like, that's that's the issue is you're not fully owning it. Like, you are you know, he's recognized that, you know, how it could offend people. But I don't think he fully owned that it was a misstep, which is the larger issue here. And I think the question about if you should delete it, should you not? I mean, yeah, it's always going to be out there. But there is going to be people that will come across the tweet after the explanation that won't see the explanation. And I think that's where I would argue that deleting doesn't solve anything, but it could have some value in that it keeps as many people possibly from coming across it in a new way that haven't seen his context. And I mean, if if a tweet needs context of the person who did it happen to speak to reporters and them write stories and send out other tweets about it, then you probably know there's something wrong with it. And I think the other thing is when you look at it visually, the fact that, I mean, we know this is kind of how the Raiders like to do stuff branding wise, you know, the black with the white lettering. But I mean, visually that it's, it looks very similar, wouldn't you say, to those shirts? Yeah. And that was like, I sent him a picture of the shirts. And I think that's when like the realization kind of set in, you know, the parallels between the two. And I don't think like any of us on this call, like, like thought that they meant it in that way. But as a, you know, a casual onlooker, even like somebody that's not even a big NFL fan, they see that. What do you think they're going to think of? You know? And so I just think he had that oversight, which, like I said, it makes sense. But, you know, especially when it comes to people becoming allies in this movement, research is so key. Like you have to be informed before you start making statements and trying to you know champion the movement and become this activist kind of figure. Like you have to know what you're talking about before you fully jump into it. And I think that's something that not just this isn't exclusive to Mark Davis. Like we've seen this with other organizations across sports leagues and individuals and, and people in general on social media and, and on TV, you know, kind of talking about this thing and then making missteps. I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi said something that was just ridiculous. And so I think all that kind of stuff comes from, you know, ignorance and a lack of research. And I think my bigger hope from it, because I do think like his intent was in the right place, is that he's a little bit more careful and, and more thorough. I mean, his preparation leading up to these kind of statements and movements before he actually does them. And that if he does have another misstep, because, you know, none of us are impervious to mistakes, that he owns it more fully next time around. Yeah, I think you know, he wanted to quote uh, George Floyd's brother. And instead of just quoting him in a tweet, he decided to paraphrase it, kind of make it maybe more like more bolder and more more dramatic, which obviously backfired. It came off as incredibly tone deaf. I think we saw last night, like LeBron James kind of did a you know, WTF about the tweet, and that kind of at least took them to unpin the tweet. The tweet's no longer pinned, so it's, it's still up there, but it's not pinned to the top of their page anymore, which I guess is a small thing. But I can see where, I mean, we mentioned Mark has a history of doing the right thing as far as the, the movement and, and being very involved in the cause, and I think he wanted to make a big statement. He def- definitely took a misstep. I think um, for him, I think deleting it would be an admission that he was wrong and trying to, to be out there with it, and he doesn't want to say that, so I... I I think he should delete it, but I don't think he will at this point. I just think um, 
it's tough because I do think his heart was in the right place. But obviously, once he decides to do this, and I think the bigger problem for me in terms of how the tweet got up there and how it stayed up there and why it's still there is the checks and balances. I think you have both Mark Bedane and Marcel Reese who are close to him who definitely have um, enough juice to say, you know what, this may not be what you think it is. This may not be a good idea. We probably shouldn't do this. And we don't know if they did that and he said, never mind, it's fine, or if they didn't feel comfortable doing that. But there's got to be someone that tells the owner, you know what, this is the history of this thing. This is not a good look for us. I know what you meant, but that's not what comes across here. So I think my bigger problem is that he wanted to do it. He did it, and it's there. And now it was a really embarrassing day for the organization, which could easily you know, been fixed at the jump. Yeah, I mean, Deshaun shouldn't have been the one who has to provide him the context. I'm glad that Deshaun was able to, and Deshaun was able to talk to him. But, I mean, it shouldn't be on Deshaun to, as a reporter covering this team, to be the one that has to inform him and, and teach him these things. It, there, there should, like you said, there should be better checks and balances. Yeah, and just not deleting it seems kind of strange to me. I mean, you know, you did admit that it was wrong in your quote, but... You know, you don't want to delete it, even though deleting it is kind of an admission that you were wrong and kind of at least gets rid of it. So like you said, not more people misinterprets it, but I don't get the decision not to delete it. But I mean, at the same time, I understand that they were trying to do something meaningful, but not deleting is just questionable to me. All right. Well, we will move on to the NFL draft. Obviously, um, that is uh, another important matter for the Raiders facing them uh, next week. Uh, We are one week away as as this podcast drops on Thursday. One week away from the NFL draft, the Raiders have their first pick at number 17 overall. And Vic, you wrote about, you kind of looked at the, the trends that the Raiders have tended to follow. And it's pretty clear that they are a team that everybody tries to, to lie and say that they draft best available player but the Raiders draft for need, and they essentially admitted this when Mike Mayock was hired. He was asked, I think, about this, and he basically said, well, there, there's two ways that people go about it. You draft the best available, or you draft for need. And you know, at the time, he said, you know, coaches draft for need, and we're a coach's team. So he pretty much acknowledged that that's largely what they're going to do. Now, he did hedge and say, you know, we always want to take the best available player, but need might be a tiebreaker. But I mean, you look at 2018, they were going to draft a tackle. You look at 2019, their first pick, they were going to draft a defensive end. Last year, they were going to draft a receiver, and that's what they did. This draft they go into, they need a starting safety and they need a starting right tackle. Do you have any reason to believe that that's not where they'll go with one with one of those two positions? No, I think they'll go uh, probably right tackle, or if not, trade. They've always also traded down a lot. They never trade up; they trade down uh, on occasion. But I think it's a deep class at tackle, so you can probably trade down and still get a guy who can come in and start from day one. But um, to me, they've addressed pretty much the other needs you know, somewhat throughout the offseason. So as of today, Brandon Parker is just starting a right tackle. That's probably not what they want for very long. Maybe for a couple of weeks if you had to, but it's definitely not their plan for next season. And then safety, I mean, they got Carl Joseph back, but I don't think Carl Joseph is a starting uh, free safety. And, and same with Jeff Heath. So I think they have to address that also. So they have two pretty obvious needs. And based on their history we've talked about, that's where I see them going probably in the first two rounds. Yeah, and I think the thing about people just hear the word need and think, I guess, don't make the correlation that you can possibly have a best player available be at a position of need. <laughs> like that is, it is certainly possible, like that the best player at 17 is off at the tackle or safety. You know, the best player available strategy is best for teams that are like really awful, like bottom of the barrel, like top five pick range team, or 
you're so good that it doesn't really like matter like the you know the chiefs or, or the bucks or something like that but when you're one of these in-between teams you can't just like randomly draft you know who you think is the best player when you don't need it like you know if they drafted a receiver at 17 right after drafting two receivers last year and signing a couple other receivers this offseason doesn't really make sense or drafting a running back when you have josh jacobs and Kenyon drake for example if that was the best player so i just think people have to like realize that you have to draft what context when you're in a position that the raiders are i think best true bpa doesn't really exist i mean like especially in the first round because you know you unless you're picking a top 10 and you have players that are so highly ranked above each other that you know when you it does reach your pick and you know you have a position of need but there's another position that's it's not of need but that player is graded so much higher than the other guy that you have to take the other guy that is when bpa comes into contention but like you know when you're especially when you're drafting the middle of the first round you're gonna have a bunch of players graded around the same area you're gonna pick the guy that your team needs more especially when you have a couple really glaring needs at right tackle and at free safety and in this class there's going to be a lot of good tackles that can be drafted in that mid-round spot so they won't be reaching unless they do reach for some guy that we never heard of in third round which is possible too but I mean, a lot of people point to the Cleland Farrell pick as, you know, reaching for a position of need. They reach for the wrong guy. You know, they could have got like Brian Burns or somebody like that. It's not that they reached for a defensive end. And that's the reason why they ended up with the guy that is, doesn't look like he could reach double digit sacks. It's because they reached for a defensive end that was ranked pretty low. Like every, most people had a, a low first round grade on him. Ironically, that draft, I mean, they thought they were set at a D-tackle. There were a lot of D-tackles that draft who were in top top 10 guys. They thought they were set there, so that's why they went with defensive end. And now, we've seen recently they've cleared out all those defensive tackles the last couple of years and have a whole new crew. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. I think my only like BPA argument would be like that you don't, if you're the Raiders, don't have to go just strictly BPA, but they need defensive playmakers so badly that like I don't care if they have Unique Ngakwe, Max Crosby, Cleland Furl, and all those guys to play defensive end. If defensive end is the best player available at 17, I've taken a defensive end and just hoping that we can finally get, you know, a, an explosive pass rush going. I think that would be my only BPA argument is that, yeah, they've spent a lot of money on, on linebackers. If if Micah Parsons is there and is the best player available at 17 and gives you a truly dynamic linebacker, 
take him and, and the hell with the need, because that's to me how desperately they need to find somebody on the defensive side of the ball that is, you know, a true difference maker. You hope Unique Ngakwe is one of those guys. But Vic, you talked about going in the offseason. They needed to add two guys on defense that are the two best players on defense. They hope they've added one. They still need to find that second one. With the edge rusher thing, I don't really think there's an edge rusher like that in the 10 to 20 range that is going to step in year one or even year two or three, like, and be this dynamic. You know, obviously you never know, but this edge rusher class compared to years past isn't very good. Any of those guys that would be available in that range, I guess Jalen Phillips out of Miami is a guy you could look at or, you know, some of these other guys, but all of them have these big question marks where it's like, eh, you know, there's no, no doubter in that range at, at that position. I think Micah Parsons really is, and I don't even see him falling that far to 17, but I think he's the only defensive guy that could that could theoretically be there that you would turn to. I definitely don't think there's anybody on the offensive side of the ball, like outside of offensive tackle, that they could really justify taking a 17. Like even if it's like one of those receivers that, you know, that falls to 17, like can you really do that after you just took Henry Ruggs number 12? Like I don't know. The problem with Parsons, I think, is you just gave Nicholas Morrow $4.5 million for one year, plus you got the two guys from last year you're paying a good chunk of change. So I think you've kind of put yourself in a corner a little bit where instead of spending that money on a safety or a tackle, you spend on on Nick Morrow, who's you know, a fine player. But now if you look at Parsons, you look at your board, and like, so what does that mean? So one of these three guys you paid a good deal of money last year is not going to play? I mean, and you still ignored one of your biggest needs. So I think the best player available thing gets you in trouble in that way. When you kind of made the moves in the offseason, definitely pointed into a certain direction to veer course the last minute. So you know what? Nick Parsons is really good. we got to get him. And then you kind of put yourself in a kind of a pickle. But how much money do they have committed to any of those three linebackers beyond 2021 is, I think, how I would look at it. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're looking about at building a team, you probably got to look beyond just the next year. And when Morrow's on a one year deal and, and I you know, just the way the Raiders usually structure the contracts without looking at them, I'm, I know they did do some restructuring on, on guys. So they they probably kicked some money of, of the other two guys back a little bit. But um, I mean, I don't think they have a ton of money committed to them beyond this year. I'm assuming they're trying to win this year. I think this is Derek Carr. I mean, this is a key year for him as far as you know, they haven't had an extension yet, so they got to figure out if he's the guy for the future, really long term. And so I think that they're trying. They got to try to win this year. So I think you're trying to get, fill these needs this year to be a playoff team, which you could have been maybe last year if not for all the breakdowns. So yeah, I, I know some people think there's a long term plan, and, and John changes plans every every five minutes, but. I think based on what we've done this offseason, you're trying, I hope, to build a playoff team this season. Yeah, you also got to think about positional value, too. I mean, linebacker is sort of like the running back of the defense in in that they're very um, dependent on other positions. Throw your money at them. Come on, throw your money at them. You know, you you need the defensive line to protect the linebackers. And, you know, if you're getting killed in the passing game, you know, outside, the linebacker is not going to make that much of a difference. And that's the direction the game is headed towards, too. If a talent like Parsons does drop all the way down to 17, then there are probably some real legitimate character concerns that comes with Parsons if he were to drop that far. And I'm not commenting on those concerns or I'm not making any judgments on those, but I'm just saying if he does. Sounds like you are. But but if he does drop to 17, it does seem like teams are concerned with it. And are the Raiders in position to take, you know, another gamble at you know, at a player, you have to consider that and you have to consider positional value. I think if you were to go 
defense in the first round, you would probably look at free safety at a guy like uh, Morig from TCU could be in contention, but free safety, I think, is probably one of the hardest positions to kind of scout. And yeah, the Raiders have not had good success with drafting for safeties in the first round. So, you know, you might want to wait till the second round with a guy like Richie Grant, who does have a lot of uh, center field experience, might be available. But I think safety would be the only way to go if you were to go in that direction in the first round. Plus, I'll say to Jimmy's point about trying to plan ahead, I think, I mean, that's why to me, I think a tackle makes a lot of sense either first or second round because then you get these two, you got Colton Miller, the, the recent extension, Audrey James got an extension. Now you add a young right tackle for the next five years. You kind of built this young, a new young nucleus at line, which you can kind of go forward with, kind of two cornerstones in the tackle spots and, and your center. So I think that might be the way to look at it in terms of long term planning. I just don't get like why people don't. Like, see the value, like, the offensive, like, there are too many positions in football more valuable than offensive tackle. Like, just watch the Super Bowl and see the reasons why. But if I'm the Raiders, there's no way I can move move forward planning for Brandon Parker to be my day one starter at right tackle. Like, I just cannot, like, I've seen nothing so far that would make me feel comfortable Yeah, two good that. games. Like, we had, <laughs> Ted, like, two really game. good games. Yeah, for, like, half well, one a week. And half. <laughs> half a week. Like, the next week he was back to, <laughs> and, like, if, if Sam Young and then how terrible he was and injured... Was, was was still ahead of Brandon Parker in the swing tackle rotation? Like that? No. Speaking of Sam Young, you guys give me odds that Sam Young is back next year. I bet you Sam Young comes back next year as a kind of a, a plug in. Training guy. camp side. Yeah, I think right. I think he'll be back. So let's not let's not forget uh, Mr. Sam Young quite yet. See, I think, you know, uh, to Sean's point about Brandon Parker is why it was surprising that they, that they didn't add a veteran tackle. And and maybe they would argue that they kind of did by bringing back Denzel Good, that even though they might view Parker ahead of him right now, they want would rather have Parker win that job if they don't add one in the draft. They might feel good enough about Denzel Good, you know, and how he played at right tackle last year that they kind of consider that the, the veteran option. But, you know, we'll see how that goes. I, I think, you know, Ted, you mentioned the free safeties, and I think where the Raiders are probably in a precarious position, if we talk about right tackle and free safety are the two obvious positions they need to add really a starter at. And to Sean, you did your whole best fits series, and for every other big need that the Raiders have, you had 10 names. Uh, For free safety, you can only even come up with five names that were good fits. The Raiders are not going to be in a position where, I mean, if they don't address free safety by the second round, they're probably not getting a guy that they can rely on to be a starter. Yeah, I really think the only two guys that can come in and start day one, just from my evaluation, which isn't, you know, holy law or anything, but I think Trayvon Morig and, and Richie Grant are the only two. I know a lot of people like Javon Holland. I think he's more of a strong safety slash nickelback at the next level, it seems like. And they really need a true center field or free safety because maybe, you know, if he can make that transition, you could probably throw him in the mix. But I think beyond those two that, that I mentioned to start, you know, Andre Cisco from Syracuse is probably the next best option. He's like a third round prospect. He's really aggressive, makes some mistakes. I don't think he'd be ready to start year one. So you'd probably be out there with Jonathan Abram next to, I suppose, Jeff Heath would be free safety or maybe Carl Joseph would get to look at free safety, you know, or some mix of the two. And that just doesn't sound like the best plan in the world. So, you know, I think Morick would be the first safety off the board. It just seems that way based off all the, all the things that we've been hearing. I don't think Grant is going to make it all the way to 48. And so I think they might be in a position where maybe you, you have to package 48 with, you know, 79 or 80 and, and move up higher in the second round to get him. But they definitely, I think, they need to make it a priority to get one of those two guys. And maybe that's why, you know, with the first pick, there's like, you know, forget it. We'll take Morig right here and make sure we get a safety. And then since offensive tackle is deeper, 
you know, maybe they they bank on you know one being there that could start at number forty eight. The chances are, are definitely higher because just because there's more quality tackles and there are quality free safeties in this draft. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a, a better chance you find a quality tackle in this class in the second round than a safety. But if they do go tackle in the first round, I and I think if Richie Grant drops into the second round, which there's a, a good chance he does, I think they probably would have to trade up to to get him. Let's talk later round prospects. You know, maybe late third, end of the second day, day three. You know, we saw a lot, you know, a couple seasons ago, Max Crosby, fourth round pick, finished second in the defensive rookie of the year voting. Are there any guys that you guys have targeted, you know, day three that could step in and be a surprise kind of prize of the Raiders draft class? I think there's some defensive tackles in that range that I would take a look at. It's kind of like the edge rusher class. Like it's not, you know, a ton of top end dominant guys, but there are some guys in the later rounds that, you know, they had a potential maybe to become starters or at least very good rotational players that position to need. And even though they've signed a bunch of defensive tackles this offseason, I believe they don't have any under contract past this season. And so they could very well next year be needing, you know, a new starter at either one of the defensive tackle positions. And so, you know, Davion Nixon out of Iowa, he's a guy that, I mean, he played in a 3-4 in college, I believe, but he could transition into that three technique role. And he has some some off the field character concerns. So it's a matter of if that stuff checks out. Uh, if that were to scare them off, I think Jay Tufele, I think is how I pronounce his name, from UFC. He's another defensive tackle. But he's a guy that opted out last year, and so we don't know how the Raiders fully feel about that. And so if they, they decide to punt on, on defense tackles in that range and wait a little bit later, maybe a guy that could fall into the fourth round, Marvin Wilson, a defensive tackle out of Florida State. Um, I covered him for a couple of years down there. That's not why I'm putting him in here. But he's a guy that was, you know, beat up a lot in college, uh, you know, injury-wise. But, you know, if you just take talent aside, he probably has, like, day one talent. Does he wear a single digit? Is that the Florida State D tackle that wears a single digit? He wore 21 at Florida State. But he was a former uh, five-star prospect out of Houston, uh, you know, former number one overall player in the class. And he's, he's talented as hell. It's just a matter of if he can get on the field. And I think that's the kind of guy when you get into the fourth or fifth round, you can take a swing on that kind of guy, especially since they don't need him necessarily year one. And you can just see if he can develop into a dominant force at that three-technique position in the years to come. I think that's somebody that I would I would definitely take a shot on if he's there with you know, let's say the 121st pick, I, I definitely would, would try him out. I'm a big uh, Trill Williams guy, cornerback out of Syracuse. I think um, I can see Gus Bradley want to add the cornerback of his own. I know they, you know, he inherits Arnett and Mullen. They just uh, signed Russell Douglas and brought back Nevin Lawson. But uh, Trill's got, he's about 6'2", he can run, he can move around a little bit, pretty aggressive. Um, played through injury last year. I think he had a total ligament in his ankle last year, played through it. So I'm sure they love that toughness. So, He's a guy I like a lot, and I think uh, if you look at uh, Gus, needs to get some of his own guys in here and in this, in this mix. So that's a guy I like. All right. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, we're going to take a few questions. Uh, we'll start with this one, uh, and it's uh, it's something, a topic that Deshaun referenced a little bit there. Uh, this is from Richard S. Would Mayock and Gruden really pass over talented prospects just because they opted out? There's a lot of good names to bypass. And that's a reference to Vic. You wrote uh, the other day that you don't, you know, you don't believe, and this is just a hunch of yours, that the Raiders in the first few rounds, maybe at least the first two days, will draft anybody that opted out of the 2020 season. Yeah, it's just a feeling I get talking to people and kind of, I just think that uh, you always hear John and Mike talk about, you know, the love of football. They want guys who are totally, you know, bought in and committed and 
what does what uh, Mike say there? They're um, building blocks and you know, foundation pieces. I just think that those guys are probably going to frown on it. Obviously, everybody has legitimate reasons for opting out, but I think it, those guys are going to look at it like, are we really there for your team? Are you really committed to the game? And what guarantees do we have? You're not going to like you know, opt out this year if you have problems. I just think that for them, they're going to focus on guys who played last year, I think. And I could be wrong. I'm definitely looking forward to tracking this, but I definitely think there's something to it, whereas a lot of teams around the league probably are have raised eyebrows about some of these guys who didn't play last year. So you don't know what you're getting. You definitely There's a, a year removed from, from active game tape where you can watch what these guys have done recently. So I think there's a lot of reasons why these guys may fall this year in the draft. I wonder if that takes Tevin Jenkins out of the right tackle from Oklahoma State out of the conversation because he didn't play in 2020 but you know everything about him screams Raiders I mean he, he's a right tackle he, he buries people good athlete tested well at the pro days but yeah he, he didn't play in uh, 2020 I think he's a fan favorite to get drafted uh, by the Raiders in the first round I think outside of offensive tackle and safety they don't have any immediate needs as far as guys are coming and start so I think when it comes to those kind of samey positions like I was saying a bunch of defensive tackles clustered together if, you know, they have guys pretty close and one of them didn't opt out, then I could see them, you know, at that point going with the guy that played in 2020. But you know, like a guy like Tevin Jenkins, like you said, if he's, you know, the best available offensive tackle, you feel that at whatever spot they end up drafting in the first round, you know, they could trade potentially. But it's just kind of hard to like like the commenter was saying, like, are you really going to pass on him just because of a weird ass college football season he didn't play? You know, so be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think that's where context, you know, asking these guys about it matters probably because, you know, it was such a weird deal with some of these conferences where they were going to play the season in the spring or they weren't going to play. And then all of a sudden they were going to play. And a lot of these guys, when season started getting pushed back, that's when they said, nah, I'm out. I'm just going to start preparing for the draft. And and I mean, like, if you're a guy that like, okay, I don't think we're going to play. I'm going to leave school. I'm going to opt out. I'm going to get a agent. I'm going to get a trainer and I'm going to start like preparing for the draft then all of a sudden when you know your conference your school all that reverse course it, it it's a little bit tricky so i mean i think probably individual situations will play a, a little bit of a factor there so the final question before we get out from uh, from jeremy p when you hear draft team buzz about a player example the raiders love micah parsons and desperately want him do you tend to believe that buzz or see it as smokescreen for who the team really wants and would never let that leak vic what do you think on uh, on Buzz versus uh, smokescreen. Uh, it's a good question because it's there's so much of of both, and it's hard to figure out what what's what. I mean, a lot of it comes from agents trying to get their guys into a better spot. A lot of it comes from other teams trying to get guys to fall down the board. Negative buzz. So, I think you got to just take it all with a grain of salt. I think I mean, and, and the team itself definitely tries to be quiet, and some things leak out every now and then. Like with Colton Miller a couple of years ago, that was kind of I think it leaked out uh, the last week before the draft. So, but I think for the most part, you guys just uh, kind of ignore all that stuff and just kind of focus on what the team needs, what they're looking at, you know, and even visits you could, in the past, you couldn't really rely on what the, those meaning much. But and this year they've had five Zooms with each player. So we there's so much going on behind the scenes. We have no idea what, what what's happening this year, especially. So it's hard to predict. I think that's why these mock drafts this year are all, all over the board. So I, to me, I kind of pretty much ignore the buzz and smoke screen, especially when it's coming from people who I have no idea who, who they are, where they got it from. So I try my best to ignore that stuff. 
Alrighty, guys. Well, uh, I think that'll wrap up this episode of State of the Nation. We will, of course, be back next week. Uh, all the excitement of the NFL draft. We'll see what the Raiders do, especially in those first couple of days as they uh, try to get this team built back toward uh, taking a shot at the playoffs. Let's go real quick and do a, a, a first pick. Each guy gives their their, their pick at 17. Uh, who wants to go first? Tevin Jenkins, Oklahoma State. That's it. Tevin Jenkins for me. That was my guy, too. Wow. <laughs> Jimmy? I'll go your guy falls. Quitty Pay, Michigan. Wow. That's a great pick. Uh, I'm going to go uh, Christian Derisaw. Another tackle. So we got three tackles and an edge rusher. I like it. I need an impact defensive player. But he's really good. I mean, I, I think he's uh, one of those guys who uh, you can't use the term I can't miss, but I think he's pretty close to that. All right. We'll see if any of us are right come next Thursday in the NFL draft. Talk to you later. All right, y'all. Peace. Adios. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.